0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about the impact of GDPR on mailing lists, keyword stuffing, shady competition, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 422. Welcome to Startups to the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. How'd you like my announcer voice today?
1: It was great. You know, very... I was working on it. Are you taking, like, voice acting classes so that you can can be, be, like, (laughs) you know, announce movies and stuff?
0: A voiceover guy. I could be more annoying with it. I was trying not to sound like a radio DJ. What's the word this week, man? What are you doing?
1: You know, it occurred to me that uh, last week you were giving me crap for like forgetting the intro. I will remind you of the time in MicroConf Europe we were on stage and you completely spaced on the intro. So
0: I did, actually. And I was like, I can't remember anything. That's right.
1: So it's not just me. We're both getting old. Indeed. Or not just you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, so a couple of weeks back when uh, episode 420, when Einar and I recorded it, we got on the mic, we recorded it, and after I, you know I, I hit stop, he said, do you guys do one of these every week? <laughs> it was super funny. And I didn't, I said, yeah, but it's easier, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't tell if he was just saying what a slog this was or... You know, it was it was just a funny question, and I was like, "Well, yeah, we do it every week for the last four hundred and twenty weeks. We have done one every week." You know, it's this it was this realization of like, you know, I, I don't know. I think it, it may have taken a lot of energy or a lot of thought for him to to kind of be there to be on a podcast, right? If you're not used to doing it all the time, it can it can feel exhausting. But I I mean, remember the first 20 or 30 of these, how hard they were? Like I I would like go take a nap after we recorded because I was so stressed and so anxious and nervous and like not knowing what to say.
1: For the four listeners that we had at the time.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yep. And then eventually that all goes away, right? It's like that leaning into hard things and then doing things that scare you and getting better at them.
1: Yeah, it's I don't know. I don't really have a problem, you know, just getting on and talking at this point. I'm not self-conscious about it, but I also don't think that like, oh, there's, you know, 300 or 3000 people like staring at me while I talk.
0: (laughs) Right. It's definitely different than being up on stage. So how about you? What's going on this week?
1: Well, uh, I've gotten a couple of uh, extremely angry emails from people who are unsubscribing from a couple of my uh, newsletter. I've gotten two separate F-off emails this week. So I think I'm doing something right. What do you think
0: that is? I don't
1: – well, one person I think – probably. <laughs> I I have I think I have explanations for both of them. One of them said he unsubscribed three times and I looked and there was only one unsubscribe there. So either it just wasn't working or he wasn't actually unsubscribing. I mean thought he was, because uh the way it's set up is you have to it takes you over to the unsubscribe page, but it does it so you can manage your subscriptions, but just clicking the link isn't like a one-click unsubscribe. So my suspicion is he didn't actually do it. Right.
0: And there's a big red button on that page that says, it says you have not been unsubscribed and there's a big red button that says unsubscribe from all and you have to click that. Just so you know, there is a setting in Drip. I, you don't need to do it, but you could flip it so that the moment they click that one link in their email, it unsubscribes them from everything. We've had people who want to do both ways, which is why there is a setting. And I say we, I don't work there anymore. But when, <laughs> <laughs> when we built it, I have a really tough time with that, dude. I still say we all the time about Drip. And it's like, is it technically we anymore if I'm not there?
1: You know, usually it's it's the way I talk about it is that, you know, if it's something that, uh, you know, I want to quote unquote claim responsibility for, but somebody else is going to do it. It's like we as in those people. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, as in you. <laughs> So yeah, I know. I, t- I totally understand that. But I don't know what the whole deal was there. And then the other one, I'm still tracking it down. Like, it looks like I got bad data in terms of the name. And he, apparently he was extremely upset that I said the wrong name in the email. So, but it was, but the, the way I got it was that. So called him a completely different name.
0: Yeah. That's weird. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? You can't please everybody and you get one or two of these out of thousands. It's like some people are just Jerks or idiots or had a bad day. I mean, there's, there's all, a bunch of different explanations for it, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm not worried about it.
0: <laughs> you bring it up more to laugh about it than, than anything? Yep. It must be doing something right. We have some new iTunes reviews. Uh, we got one in October from Will, and he said, both inspirational and actionable. Most entrepreneurial podcasts fall either into the inspirational bucket or the actionable bucket, but rarely is a podcast both. Startups for the rest of us is an exception to this. And we got another uh, review from Grit J. Man, his mom must have not liked him. Grit J. Top notch, it says, wow, clearly brilliant and useful info, huge value. Do you think Grit J is just an online handle? Or do you think I'm mispronouncing it and it's like grige or something like that?
1: Uh, no idea.
0: <laughs> no idea, don't care, huh? But thanks for the amazing reviews I didn't say that I didn't
1: care. I just I, said I had no idea. I don't have it in front of me. I can't see what I'd spell. Uh, are you eating something
0: while we're recording? No. Yes, you are you totally are. Uh, this is this is great. Ladies and gentlemen, start up hey, for the you rest, rest record of
1: record at noon. So what I do you know. want me to do? That's
0: true. You're starving. So thanks for the iTunes reviews. If you have not left us a five star review, I promise I will not make fun of your name and I will not say that Mike doesn't care about you because I know that he cares about each and every listener. So it would be Great. If you could log into the Clunky iTunes interface, click the five star and leave us a sentence about, hey, you know, these guys say things every week. Say something factual. Even if you don't like us, put five stars and be like, yeah, these guys release a show every week. That's the thing, right? Five star worthy.
1: I think that is five star worthy. Like just (laughs) showing up every every single week for like eight years. We're going up on nine at this point. So that's a a long time. Thanks, dedication. Yeah, stupidity. And And sandwiches. There you go.
0: (laughs) So we're going to answer listener questions today. Our mailbag is full once again, which is nice. As usual, the voicemails went to the top of the stack. So we're going to start with a voicemail about the impact of GDPR on the value of mailing lists. Hello, Mike. Hello, Rob. My name is Paul from Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for taking my question. You both espouse the value of developing and curating mailing lists. But I recently read an article from Lead Pages stating that, and I quote, a required checkbox does not allow for freely
1: given consent under the GDPR law. Therefore, it should be optional for a subscriber to consent to receiving marketing emails from you
0: in order to receive a lead magnet, freebie, paid product, etc. What do you think this means for the building of mailing lists going forward? And does this affect your
1: view of the value of mailing lists in relation to the likely increase in effort required to develop enough traffic to make up for the loss of email signups due to
0: this optionality? Thanks again and have a great day. So thanks for the question, Paul. I appreciate that. I think you might be misunderstanding something. I just want to clarify that a required checkbox does not allow for freely given consent under the GDPR law that's that's the quote you have and what that means is if you force them to have the checkbox checked in order to proceed you have not given them optionality so what that means is they it needs to be an option when they submit your email form they put in their email maybe their first name that there is a checkbox there i believe it should be. Uh, it has to be unchecked by default. That's my understanding. Not a lawyer. Not a GDPR expert. But I believe it has to be unchecked by default. You, and you can't force them to check it to submit the form. Does that make sense? So they should be able to submit that form. It doesn't make any. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's what. The, that's how my understanding of the law is. So, if they check it and they submit it, then they have consented, and now you can email them. If they don't check it and submit it then you need to figure out what to do with that customer cuz they have not consented to hear from you. Now what they built in drip and yeah, I just said they finally cuz they they were kind of were building it as I was leaving, but I think they did a really elegant implementation. And if that check you can just add a GDPR checkbox. It's a it's a strongly typed item in, you know, drip settings and when you add it, if someone submits without that checkbox being checked, then they have a a property on the subscriber that says permission granted or permission gdpr or permission given or something and that is either set to true false or unknown right and unknown is if they were added through other means you know through an api or an import or maybe they were added before you enabled it or whatever but if they, again if they check you know if they do check it and submit it then it's true and if they don't then it's false and so you as a you know drip customer could just have a workflow or a rule that says anyone who's added with it false unsubscribe them from all delete them do something to get them out of your system or you can keep them in your system you know in the drip account i'm not sure why you would do that and just make sure that when you send an email to everybody that you exclude those subscribers from this segment so that that's just, those are nuts and bolts that I'll cover before, because his, his question is not about that. It's more about the, how do we think this is going to impact it? But I kind of wanted to clarify that. I'm using Drip as an example because I know, you know, pretty intimately the implementation, and I think it's a good one. I'm pretty sure MailChimp and ActiveCampaign and Infusionsoft have all done, you know, similar, uh, you know, kind of related implementations. So now, you know, to, over to you, he actually had a question. What do you think this means for building a mailing list going forward?
1: I don't think that it changes a whole lot in terms of building the mailing list, but I do think it probably has an impact on what you do with it once you have those email addresses, because you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to send them email or not. And if they're submitting it and they, they haven't you know, provided consent or anything like that, do you still email them anyway?
0: Isn't it illegal if they're in the EU? I mean, you're breaking EU law if you do that, right?
1: Yeah, you are. I, I, at least I, would, I believe that you are. Yeah. Um, the question is, do you care? and i'm not saying that you should or should not and i'm not a lawyer here so you know you got to make your own decisions here but at the same time if they're submitting that like what what stance does your company want to take on this do you want to be hardline yes we're going to come fully compliant with gdpr and we're going to Take that extremely seriously, and we won't email you unless you click the checkbox. And if you do that, it's like organ donor cards. Like, if you, whatever the default is, that's what most people are going to tend to. Me, I probably wouldn't check it because I'd be like, okay, I, it doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm not in the EU, so I don't have to click this checkbox and it doesn't matter. I'll just click and submit. But does that mean that you shouldn't send an email to me? And the answer would be no, because I live in the US. So, like, it, it's not applicable. But you as a marketer have to decide where did this person come in from? Can you figure that out technologically? And even if you can, where do they receive their email? Where are they actually based? Are they using a VPN? You don't know any of that stuff. So I feel like there's still going to be some things that come down the line where some of these things are going to change a little bit. Maybe GDPR is going to be modified to say that if you don't get consent upfront, you can turn around and send them an email to ask for it. And if you don't get it then, okay, fine. But you know, that's really not any different than a double opt in at that point. And I feel like there's, with any laws that are written, inevitably they are never written by people who are technical enough to understand what they're actually trying to implement. And that kind of stuff is going to happen. And because this was the first pass to GDPR, I expect there's going to be changes. I would hope that that's one of them, but I don't know. And ultimately it boils down to like, what, what is your risk tolerance moving forward with your company and how likely do you think you are to be brought to court for, over something like that?
0: That's it, right? And there is a setting in many of the um, ESPs, and Drip is one as well, where you can make, show this checkbox, but then there's a setting. This is where I feel like, again, Drip went the extra mile. There's a checkbox that you can check in your Drip console to only show the GDPR checkbox on your forms if client's browser registers to the EU, meaning it's doing you know IP lookups, I'm assuming that's what it's doing, and and geolocating them. And you and I know as technologists that that's not 100% foolproof, just like you said. Maybe they were on a trip, maybe they were on a VPN, maybe whatever. You know, there's a bunch of ways that that could be spoofed or, or incorrect or whatever. But here's the question, like if gdpr or if the eu actually came after you your little small business which i just don't think they're going to do and you said look we implemented all this stuff a are they even going to be are, there, are the auditors going to even be smart enough to realize you know that there's this setting and and b not smart enough is not the right thing but like tech, technical enough to understand it and b if you say look i did this i did the best i could like this is the kind of stuff that is it's such a gray area that i think Fretting about it is, I don't know, I think there's been given a lot of wasted thought to to GDPR that I think could have been spent doing productive things, you know, I think is my opinion. And so I I think like you're saying, it's like you're saying it's risk tolerance because it's much like filing your taxes, right? You can go super conservative and you can go super liberal with your taxes. And if you go liberal and liberally interpret things, yes, if you get audited, you may run the risk. It's going to depend on the auditor because it's not black and white. As much as we want all these things to be black and white, they're not. There are shades of gray and there's levels of interpretation and there's precedent set here but not there. So it's kind of a a, a tough thing because you have to make a judgment call on it. But I don't think that GDPR is going to really impact the ability to build email lists. Just because I, I think kind of like what you said, everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders. If I see the checkbox, I check it. I guess the accidental, I mean, maybe it's going to be really hard for B to C, right? Because let's say you were Verizon or, you know, some selling to consumers, they're the ones that are going to accidentally forget to check some checkbox and that you're then going to, you know, miss out on half of your, half of your people. I, I think that more, the more tech savvy people that we deal with are going to know it, they're going to eye roll, and they're going to check the box when they need to.
1: You brought up taxes. That was actually the direction I was going to go in as well and and mention that because I, I think if you're filing your taxes, chances are really good that you've probably violated the law in some way, shape, or form and could theoretically be nailed to the wall. At that point, like when you are audited, it comes down to intent. Were you actively trying to evade the law or did you make a mistake? And if you make mistakes, technically ignorance is not A viable defense in the courts but at the same time like these government agencies realize that you've got a lot of things going on and some things are going to slip through the cracks mistakes are going to be made it's not that big a deal it's not a criminal offense so it doesn't matter if you are actively doing things that are trying to circumvent or subvert the the intent of their legislation or regulations yeah they'll nail you to the wall and that's what it comes down to
0: Yeah, it's the difference between a mistake and and fraud. Like fraud, they prosecute you for it and they put you in jail, and the fines are tremendous. If they think you did it on purpose, and if they think it was an accidental miscalculation, that happens. And they will still sometimes have leniency, and sometimes they'll they'll do a penalty or they're you know they'll certainly go back and say, well, you didn't pay us ten grand, and then we're going to add a thousand dollar penalty. But still, it's like it is ten grand that you owed them anyways. I I don't know. It's
1: but this discussion is really like why entrepreneurs hate legislations where people are making rules about stuff they don't understand it's just like please go away and let us do our thing i I get why they're trying to do it i get the intent and maybe maybe it really does work that way in reverse like i've never had my business brought to the courts for stuff like that and hopefully it will never happen but i feel like they take intent into account when they look at that stuff so
0: i'll say it again it's my soapbox this is my charge more. Patrick Quincy has charge more. I have GDPR should have excluded small businesses, whether, you know, in the US that there's this lobby that excludes small businesses from tough regulations that would be hard for them to live up to. Typically, it's, is it 25 employees or less or 50 employees or less? There's some number where you're exempt from a lot of things because they know it would put undue pressure on GDPR, I believe should have done that.
1: Yep, It's 50 employees, I think for most 50. things, but
0: yeah. Cool. So that was a good question, Paul. Thanks. Our next question is another voicemail. It's actually a question about tiny seed based on uh, episode 420 from a couple weeks ago.
1: Well, can I, can I, ask, can I answer this one? You, get to, you no. get to answer this one and just ask.
2: Hi, my name's Chris and I'm from San Antonio and I have a question for Rob and Enar about tiny seed. So I wanted to ask you about managing risk for both you, the investors, and the founders being invested in, since obviously both sides are assuming risk in such an investment. So it seems to me that with your business model, where you invest in companies that already have some traction, that the biggest risk is instead of outright failure like a VC-backed company might have where they just ran out of money, instead the biggest risk might just be mediocre growth, where the question of whether you keep investing or if you need to bail out or not isn't really black and white. So if you agree with that premise, I'm curious about what you think about the risk for the founder rather than for the investors. So assuming you want the founder to work full-time on the product that's being invested in, at what point are the founders allowed to explore other options if the Runway ones out and they're not really making enough to have a living salary like if they have a family. So, you know, are they allowed to freelance? Would they be expected for that freelance income to go into the company being invested in so you get a piece of that revenue or does the relationship simply end at that point? And like even looking out past that runway, if the founder's company is floundering like 2 or 3 years later, what's the responsibility that the founder has to you? So in other words, Success is obviously a good problem to have for these companies you're investing in, but I'm really curious about the different ways that the companies or that the investment may fail, especially if it's not a very black and white failure scenario. Thanks. So, what do you think about this, Mike?
1: <laughs> oh, I do think so. I actually have uh, what I think are good thoughts that are pro- you could probably just confirm these for me. Cool. My inclination is to believe that like, so there's obviously like there's the ones that do well and those are successful. There's the ones that burn out and they are shut down and and close out. And neither of those are are you're really worried about. It's the ones that are floundering for, I'll say, extended periods of time. And I think in those cases, like not just tiny seed fund, but funds in general are just going to say like, okay, well, we put money into it. It didn't really go anywhere. And until the business is legally shut down, it really doesn't make any difference because nothing changes. The, The investors do not have enough equity in the business to make any business decisions or force anything to happen. So, It's kind of out of their hands, so why worry about it? Until the business is shut down, because when the business is legally shut down and the entity goes away, there's probably closeout conditions or things that are in the paperwork that say X, Y, and Z is going to happen. But beyond that, it kind of doesn't matter. And if it's floundering that badly, their time is probably better spent working on the dozens or hundreds of other startups that were invested in where some of them are being successful. And if you're going to take away the focus from those to put it on something that's floundering versus spending that time with a business that's doing well and could be doing substantially better by focusing on it, you're basically going down the wrong path as, a, as an investor.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's a bad sentiment. I mean, I to be honest, I have not Thought about this, so I'm glad he sent in the voicemail. So it's totally off the cuff, and I have not discussed this with uh, with Einar. But what do most funds do? You know, and and they do basically what you've said, and there's a reason for that, right? It's it's if the business is floundering and the founder wants to shut it down, then you let them shut it down. And if they don't want to shut it down and they want to keep, you know, I I have an angel investment where the founder just took a full time job to keep the startup alive. And he's taking some of his money and and pumping it in there because he still believes it has, you know, merit. And and he still thinks that he can grow it, that that they've kind of hit product market fit now. And so, you know, what responsibility, quote unquote, does he have to me or to the investors? I mean, he he has a responsibility to do his best. But honestly, if he had said, look, I'm going to sell this for parts, or if he said, I just can't do it anymore, and it's totally floundering, and I'm going to shut it down, then he should do that, right? I'm not going to I would honestly want to have heart to heart with him before that. Like, is this really what you want to do? You have built this to a certain point. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Is unless the relationship goes south, which most don't, you know, the investor founder relationship, like I, I'm in touch with all every founder I've invested in. Our relationships are good. I, if they just tell me honestly, like this sucks, I'm out. And, and they, they don't burn it to the ground and they don't screw anybody but they're like look this isn't growing we're going to have to shut it down it's like okay it's an angel investment i mean that's you know that's what i thought it might go to zero you know the odds are decent that it's going to go to zero so i guess all i'm saying is it's kind of the same way that that most investments are it's like some founders will feel like they have more work to do on their product even if it hasn't hit traction yet and would i encourage a founder to go freelance and then try to keep a business alive that wasn't working. I mean, if it's not working, probably not, but it tends to be that a weird gray area where it's like it's not working, but the founder thinks it's going to work in the next couple months. You know, they have this deal that's going to close or they have this feature that's going to go live or they have something game changing. And in that case, I would just talk to you, like each situation is going to be different, I guess is what, what I'm saying. So it's going to be hard to like make a blanket statement about w- what you're going to do and allow and not allow. I don't. I don't feel like I'm going to not allow much. It's like, let's talk, this is all seat of the pants, right? Building startups is building the parachute as you jump out of the plane on your way down, as Reid Hoffman says. So each of these things, it's like, well, let's, let's have a conversation. What's the actual situation here? And then let's troubleshoot this like smart people who get things done. So thanks for the question. I appreciate it. Our next question is about iTunes keyword stuffing. Actually, it isn't a question. It's a statement. It's from Chris Christensen, he says, in your last podcast, you made a comment suggesting doing keyword stuffing in podcast descriptions for iTunes. On the Libsyn podcast called The Feed, they've been talking a lot about all the different podcasts that have been banned from iTunes for doing keyword stuffing. Don't try it. And we should definitely clarify, we weren't saying do keyword stuffing. We were saying it does work because of the the way the algorithm is not very advanced. Now they may fix that longer term, but you've been able to keyword stuff and, and rank for searches relatively easy in iTunes. Now, whether you do that or because if you do it, you could get banned. If you're a successful podcast and you're driving, you know, users and you do a little bit of it, meaning a little bit of SEO, I'm not saying you stuff in 20 keywords that have nothing to do with your podcast to try to rank for the, you know, all these topics that you don't relate to. But if you do intelligent, intelligent SEO on your on your podcast. And it's like, all right, so we're a show about startups. So in the description, I want so a couple, I want startups at least a couple times, right? In plain English, in essence, it's not startups, comma, business, comma, mixergy, comma, you know, all this stuff, but it's a, an English flow that like makes sense. I don't feel like, I don't feel like you're even walking a line there. I feel like that's a pretty reasonable approach to this. So stuffing is not what I would recommend and it's not what we do, but it is thinking deliberately about how you write the description and the subtitle and the title of your podcast.
1: Yeah, I don't remember whether it was you or me that had said that, but I probably would have referred to it as keyword stuffing and saying to do that. But it's it's not exactly... Right. At least it's not an accurate description of it. Like what I mean by keyword stuffing when you're doing a podcast is being very strategic about what you name it because the search algorithms in most of those podcast directories are really, really dumb. So it's not an and I responded to this via email as well, but like it's not an accident that our podcast is named Startups for the rest of us. So like we did some basic research and found that like those search engines are just stupid. They're not very good. So they look at the title, they may look at the subtitle, but those things count much higher than anything else. So it made a lot of sense for us to call it startups the rest of us. And plus, we had the domain name. So it just worked out. But it is a good distinction to point out the difference between being strategic about that versus what is legitimately keyword stuffing, where you're just repeating the same words over and over again.
0: Yeah, there's a reason we still rank high for that term, even though there, you know, there's the Gimlet Media startup podcast and there's Mixergy and there's Jason Kalkanis. I mean, there's, there's a lot of competition for that term. And yet, you know, I think we, we've always ranked in the top, whatever, seven, seven to 10 of those, depending on what area of the world you're in. Our next question is about shady competition and how to handle it. It's an anonymous emailer. He says, hi, Rob and Mike. First of all, thank you for all the work you guys do with the podcast and the community. Rob's book, Start Small, Stay Small, was the beginning of my life as an entrepreneur, and your podcast made me quit my job and start to work full-time on products. Hey, we should add them to our list, Mike. Right now, our success list. Right now, I'm one of the two co-founders of a profitable SaaS business. Earlier this year, we did an AppSumo deal, and during its promotion, a competitor spread false rumors about us in several private Facebook groups. He said that we had sold the business and that the app was gonna close up shop right after the AppSumo deal was over. Here's some evidence, and he sent us a, a screenshot of the person saying, this is crazy. We decided to completely ignore this and do nothing about it. In hindsight, this was a good move because in some Facebook discussions, it completely backfired on him. And right now he has stopped as far as we know. I'm worried about facing this situation again. Now that we are growing bigger, what would you do in situations like these? Thanks for all your hard work. It's a good question. It's a tough question.
1: It is a tough question. And I think it comes up, like, as as your business gets bigger and as you've been in business for longer, these situations come up more often just by virtue of, you know, being around. I think in most cases it comes back to, like, what is, like, the North Star for your business and how do you conduct your business? Like, are you really shady about it or are you pretty honest with your customers and upfront and transparent with them? And, then that has to be contrasted against who is making these types of claims and what people think of that person and what they know about them versus what they think about you and what they know about you and It boils down to like the the audience themselves and how much they like or trust the source of their information because I think in cases like this, most people are going to be pretty at least objective enough to say, yes, that's true or false, or that goes against my fundamental beliefs about what I'm hearing. And that's the way that they're going to side. And if you know that you run your business on the up and up, I would totally not worry about that stuff. You might make one comment or response and say, hey, that's totally not true, or you could just ignore it. And the people who, are, who know you well enough are going to ignore that, and they're probably not going to apply any credibility to it. And there's going to be people who don't like that person already, and it's not going to take much for it to backfire in their faces, which will stain them basically in that person's eyes forever. So, and and I've seen this happen in a bunch of different cases, you know, so people get into fights on Twitter or Facebook or wherever. And, you know, there some of them are just personalities and they clash and, you know, the, the audience of one person sides with that person, the audience of the other one sides with the other one. And it, it's just going to happen because those audiences tend to be siloed and it's based on their relationship to them and their trust. And if you've developed that trust over a long period of time, it's not going to go away. I would not worry about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of have three options when this happens. You can do nothing, you know, intentionally decide, hey, I'm I'm going to let this person burn themselves down and it makes them look dumb. Also, I will say most people who do this stuff don't have very large audiences. I mean, you and I have both dealt with trolls over the years. I've had some pretty pretty gnarly ones and all of them except for maybe one or two had 80 followers on Twitter. I mean, there was just nobody who cared what they were saying and they were trying to pull me into a fight so that, because as soon as you engage with them, when you have 13 or 14,000 followers or, or 50,000 or hundred thousand, then you're giving them attention, right? So that's one thing I would say is these, these folks tend to be, to not have a, uh, a big audience. And then I totally lean towards just completely ignoring because, it just makes more sense to do that because no one's hearing them anyways. But if they're that rare exception and they are reaching people, in this case, you know, private Facebook groups is is tough because you know that they are at least being heard, you know, you can do nothing. And if they're being torn down in the group and, and people are saying, no, that's not true or whatever, then you know, I don't I don't know that you need to say anything. You could just post one post and decide you are not gonna reply. Cause someone like this is probably gonna be a troll and is gonna say things intentionally that are gonna try to make you respond. Cause right, that's a big thing that that trolls do. That's one of the, the good skills. When if, if you have a good troll game, you don't just say things to make people mad, but you say things that make them want to respond. And you responding is actually losing. That's how I think about it. That you're giving in and you're letting them have power over you to make you respond to something that you probably No, you shouldn't. So back to the three options. It's do nothing. It's post one thing that says, nope, this is not true. This is completely false or whatever. And then don't respond again. So you have come out and said it and been clear and then say nothing. Or the third one is to go into a full-on war with them, right? And, and you know, we've seen this on Twitter, but you just, you spend a bunch of time, you spend a bunch of energy, you spend, you just waste a bunch of things and both of you look like idiots, you know, and people sit there and watch it and think, what are these, what are these fools doing, right? So you can obviously tell which way I lean, right? So it's, it's number one or number two, depending on the circumstance, but no, it sounds like in this case, you made the right call. And then moving forward, I think you just got to, you know, use your judgment on that. But it's a tough one, a tough one when this happens, because it feels, it feels crappy, especially when something is this false. I mean, it sounds like someone just completely manufactured something that wasn't true. It's bizarre.
1: Yeah. It's very easy to take it personally too, because it's your business and they're making comments and you don't want people to believe them. And you know, the reality is like the people are going to believe kind of what they, what they want to and what they're inclined to anyway. And interjecting yourself is not going to do yourself any favors in most cases. So I think Rob's advice of like either do nothing and ignore it or, you know, one post and that's it. Do not re-engage. If you any sort sort of like protracted engagement especially publicly it's never going to fall in your favor i don't know of anyone that has
0: And our last question of the day is about pruning email lists. It's from an anonymous emailer. He says, hi, Robin, Mike. We've got an email list focused on WordPress development. It's currently around 6,000 subscribers, has a 20% open rate. I believe that we should regularly purge non-engagers, people who are not opening, have a drip lead score of zero or less, et cetera but my business partner disagrees. I think that pruning non-engagers helps our list health, which keeps us in the best tab of Gmail, et cetera. He thinks that non-engagers may reactivate and also pad our numbers for sounding impressive to prospective advertisers, et cetera. What do you think? Is there a right answer? What would you do?
1: Well, that's tough because it sounds like there's two different things going on. One is like, how are those subscribers impacting your business itself and the sales? And then there's also like the, you know, padding the numbers to sound impressive to advertisers. That's a tough call there. I think that with, if you're going to go down the route of purging them, I would put together a re-engagement campaign instead of just outright purging them. So that way you reach out to them and say, hey, looks like you haven't, been engaged with any of our emails lately, click here to stay on the list. And you can send a couple of those. And if they re engage, great, keep them on the list. And if not, then purge them. I don't think I would go down the route of just blatantly getting rid of them. The other thing I would question is how they got on your list. And this is just something for you to think about is was it double opt in or a single opt in? Because if it was single opt in because they submitted something or you got their email, list, email address from someplace else and you just added them and they're not opening the emails, then chances are good you know, those are totally bogus and you're not getting through them anyway. It doesn't matter. But those are the two things I would consider for that. In terms of the trying to pad your numbers for advertisers, I don't know as I'd go down that path either. I think I would, you could give them the top line number and then caveat it with like, because your, your open rate is really what they're going to be interested in anyway. So you can just do the quick math on it and say, well, what's the actual reach? So if you've got a 6,000 subscribers and a 20% open rate, then your reach is actually about 1,200. And it doesn't matter how many of those subscribers you purge, like you're still going to have that 20% open rate and the 1,200 reach. It doesn't make a difference. Even if you purge half of them, you're still going to end up with the same numbers. So I don't know as I would worry about that too much. Just be honest and upfront with whoever your advertisers are and say, here's what we've got for subscribers. Here's what our you know, open rate is, and here's what we believe our reach and impact is for you as an advertiser. Because if you are not doing justice to your advertisers, then they're not going to come back. And that's actually what you want. Like, it's hard enough to land an advertiser or a sponsor for, you know, your podcast or your email list or what have you, like, don't destroy your trust as well. Because if you do, they won't come back and reality is like the money that you get from any one email or podcast or whatever sponsorship, it's not going to even compare to the trust that you lose and the potential revenue that you lose from them talking to other people and say, yeah, these guys screwed us.
0: I think those are all good sentiments, Mike. I think that it's exactly what I was going to say about re-engagement. And if you search for a drip workflow re-engagement, there is a one click blueprint that is is a fully built out workflow with one click, you can install it into your account. I believe it was designed by Anna way back in the day, and it's 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 really good at reengaging people. You could obviously add more emails to it or whatever. We ran this on the drip list. Let's say it's got to be twenty fifteen. Because over time, you know, open rates go down and down and we probably hit 25%. And I was just like, you know, I like to keep above 30. Because it does, it, it, the lower your engagement rates, it will put you in the promotions tab. Sometimes it'll get you in spam, but mostly it will, you know, it can impact your, your sending domain reputation as well, not the IP address that you send through. And so we would actually have, there's a little bit of a tangent, but we would actually have customers come to us like say from MailChimp or Infusionsoft. And they would say, well, their deliverability wasn't very good. And I was always like, that's a little bit of a red flag. Like I know MailChimp's deliverability is quite good. And it turns out that the IP addresses stay with InfusionSoft and MailChimp, but the domain you're using, so you know, your from address in essence, if you've kind of burned that domain by having really crappy open rates, then no matter where you go now with that domain, there is going to be a ding against you in the blacklist. So that's the, that's the real struggle. I mean, once you lose that, it's like bad credit. If, you, you know, if your credit score drops, it takes a long, long time to, to get that back. So all that to say, I like to keep my open rates up. I mean, we had customers come in with 3%, 5% open rates, and they were trying to juice the numbers saying, well, my list is 100,000 people. But literally there was like three or 4,000 that would open the emails. It was nuts. And eventually, you, know, you, you do have to intervene because they can actually, if you're on a shared you know, IPs, they can negatively impact other customers and such. But all that to say, the re-engagement thing, I tried it and it had Reengagements for people who aren't opening emails already, they're very, very unlikely to open any additional emails. I remember the results were trivial and almost not worth doing, but you should totally try it and track it because you can see in the workflow how many people get to certain steps and you can just run the numbers. I'm going to put in th- all 6,000, or I guess not 6,000 are unengaged, right? It's only uh, 4,200 are unengaged. See how many get down to the bottom and reengage. It tends to be, if I remember correctly, it was between five and 10%. And so if that's worth doing to you, then do it. Dump them in the workflow. And when it gets to the bottom, poof, you just unsubscribe by default after a certain delay if they haven't clicked anything. It's really easy to do. And I agree with you, Mike. I I don't think you need to prune down to only the 1,200 who are opening. That's ridiculous. But if someone hasn't opened 10 of your last emails, very, very, very unlikely they're going to open any email ever. So I like more thinking about if you were going to do advertisers, instead of saying, we have an email list of 6,000, you could say, we have an email list of 4,500, if assuming that's what it is after you prune. We have an email list of 4,500 and our engagement rates are 35 or 40% because that's what'll happen, right? It'll send those numbers up, And if you're talking to prospective advertisers, tell them that if you're looking at other places to advertise, ask what their open rates are, like specifically start pointing this out. I think people should pay more attention to this personally, just across the board. If I were gonna advertise on any site and they gave me an email list size, first thing I would do was I would say, show me your open rates. I wanna see a screenshot you know, of your MailChimp account. Like I need you to prove to me that your engagement is not crap. Because again, I've just seen too many people with 10, 15% open rates who say again they have a list of a hundred thousand? But it's like that's that list might as well be a fifteen or you know a twenty thousand person list. Like it's it's just not worth it. So I agree with you, Mike. I think that results are going to carry the day. I would absolutely prune it. I wouldn't prune all seventy percent. That's not how it works. You just you know you kind of go into drip or whatever your email tool is. And you say, well, if they haven't opened the last, what feels comfortable? 10, 12 emails, I think 15, you could be on that. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, it's just too big of a number that that they're never coming back. So that would be uh, my opinion on that.
1: Well, it looks like we're out of time. So I think we're going to wrap today's episode up. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupstherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from our Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Startups and visit StartupsTheRestofUs.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.